This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome. Radio Parallax, we have to admit, is sometimes produced under adverse conditions, such as the fact that your host, on occasion, is outside of the country, such as the case with today's program, which is pre-recorded. Hopefully, yours truly is somewhere between the Azor Islands and the Iberian Peninsula. This hopefully will uh, evoke some good travel stories, although I shudder when I say that because the best travel tales usually result from the most uh, untoward mishaps, shall we say. When I find myself in the middle of a difficult situation, I like to just reassure myself that this is going to sound really good in the telling later. So being that uh, we have a bit of a a chronologic disconnect at the moment, uh, I think what we're going to do is focus on some things that are not so time-dependent. And uh, in that regard, science topics uh, tend to be good subjects. So we're going to emphasize science on today's program and the next and probably the next. We try to set aside a lot of material for this show, and it generally piles up. And at a time like this, we basically go to the pile. And at the very top of the pile, I do want to slightly apologize for the fact that I neglected to inform you, dear listener, that last month was, in fact, National Grilled Cheese Month. We hope that despite the fact that we neglected our duties to inform in this regard, you were still able to satisfy yourself with a good grilled cheese sandwich somewhere along the way. Now, being that by definition, we are currently in the year 2017, it is 50 years since it was 1967. 1967 has gone down in history as the Summer of Love in San Francisco, and the city apparently plans to take advantage of that by capitalizing on the nostalgia of baby boomers. And I think maybe the interest of younger people who want to um, look back at the events of 1967. We do want to note that next month in June, it marks the 50th anniversary of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. And I must confess that I am shocked and slightly dismayed to realize that one of the hits from Sgt. Pepper's is Paul McCartney's When I'm 64. What's dismaying about that is that before this year is up, I will be 64. I know I have no and no I have no explanation for how that could possibly be happening except that I just kept taking one breath after another and the years rolled by. And yeah, I hate to disappoint all of you listeners out there who imagine that my youthful voice was more in keeping with a man in his 40s. It is my hope that uh, this program will not be the victim of ageism. Back in 1967, 50 years ago, a common expression among the youth of America, of which I was then a part, was that you shouldn't trust anyone over 30. At some point in the near future, we're going to go over a correspondence, apparently from someone who's under 30, who is possibly hanging on to that viewpoint from so long ago. I do like the fact that the San Francisco Chronicle, among others, likes to go back into their news archives, as we like to do on this program, and dig out news stories to uh, put again before the public. And, and I've got one in front of me right now that's just, just frankly irresistible. 
The Chronicle sometimes titles these pieces The Wayback Machine, and this one was written by Johnny Miller. And our incident in question also takes us back 50 years, in this case, March 15th of 1967. And I think I'm just going to read from the piece, which says, Anton LaVey, the Richmond District sorcerer who traffics with the devil and lives with a lion, lost an earthly battle yesterday and he may eventually lose his lion, all because of complaints of what his lawyer uncharitably called a lynch mob of little old ladies. Noted the Chronicle 50 years ago, the issue came to a head when 125 of LeVay's neighbors, all of them presumably within hearing distance of the magician's home at 6114 California, signed a petition. They said the lion, a 500-pound Nubian named Togare, roared a lot. They said he might even be dangerous. Well, I think that's a pretty fair bet if you're an antelope. The article goes on, they said in short that he was a public nuisance. As a result, Assistant District Attorney Frederick J. Wisman held a hearing yesterday at the Hall of Justice, where arguments pro and con Togare were heard. And in the end, Wistman signed a warrant alleging that LaVey and the lion were disturbing the peace. <laughs> the article goes on. The case will go before judge and jury in municipal court. 25 complainants showed up. I have no objection to the lion, said Mary Long of 24th Avenue. It's the noise. We can't sleep at night. It's definitely a lion's roar. And here's the part I like best. LaVey devilishly said, well, no question about that. But who could tell if the roar came from Togare or some other lion? And he allowed, as how he felt most of the protests were being made, on ecclesiastic rather than zoological grounds. That is, it should be pointed out, was a reference to LeVay's claim that he is an ordained minister in the Satanic Church, which he says modestly he founded. LeVay was represented by attorney Terence Hallinan. Said Hallinan, we will beat this case. Naturally, this piece piqued our curiosity, so we went to the internet to see if we could figure out what the follow-up was on it. And alas, it turns out that eventually Togare was, in fact, shipped off to a zoo and then finally to a private animal farm. One of our programs many years back, we talked a little bit more about the the interesting figure of Anton Zandor LeVay. So we're not going to go over that old ground again, but we urge you, dear listener, (laughs) if you're in the mood, sometime to noodle around on the internet and see what you can find out about this character. He was a San Francisco original. But back to the Summer of Love commemoration, turns out San Francisco museums are already hosting exhibitions on counterculture art, fashion, and music. The revelry will peak with June 16th to 18th Monterey Pop Festival. The 1967 version pretty much set everything else in motion, drawing huge crowds with a bill that included Jefferson Airplane, The Grateful Dead, and Jimi Hendrix, who famously burned a guitar on stage. Now, it so happens that a friend of mine, Mr. Sammy Roy, was in attendance at the Monterey Pop Festival. He was a young teenager who had a band who somehow, I don't know, I think they actually performed, I don't know, somewhere along the way. We need to have Sammy come on next month and talk a little bit about that experience. I remember him saying that Janis Joplin just scared the hell out of him. And I'm pretty sure she cut quite a figure in her day. All right, just to jump into the miscellaneous file, I I note 
that I have here, uh, a obituary from some years back, noting that noting the passing of Joe Conley at age 85, who with partner Bob Mosier created Leave It to Beaver, The Munsters, and other TV sitcoms. What struck me in stumbling upon this old piece was that left unmentioned was the fact that Joe Conley and Bob Mosier also worked on Amos and Andy in the 1950s. Amos and Andy is controversial. It was the smash hit in the early days of radio and was later able to transfer on to the new medium of television, circa like 1948, I believe. It is alleged today, in an era of political correctness, that Amos and Andy was just flat-out racist. And I'm sure that explains the omission in the obituary. I'd like to point out today, as I have in the past, that if you were a boy back in the 1960s watching television, a rerun of Amos and Andy was the only time you were going to see a black lawyer, a black doctor, other black professionals. And sure, the kingfish was always getting into some kind of trouble on some get-rich-quick scheme with his buddy Andy Brown. I would like to make the case that this was not a racist thing. Ralph Cramden, played by Jackie Gleason, and his pal... Ed Norton, who's played by Art Carney, were always getting in similar scrapes on their program, and nobody's ever accused them of racism. Sometime about a quarter century ago, they, they dug up some of their surviving stars from Amos and Andy and talked to them about uh, how it was booted off the air first in the 50s and then removed completely from television in the late 60s over concerns of, of racism. It was rather heartbreaking to watch because these talented black actors and actresses, you know, for them this was a gold mine and a chance to show what they could do with, with some excellent writing. And anyway, enough said about that. No, wait, there is one more thing I want to say about it. Back in the heyday of the National Lampoon when they had an incredible uh, array of talented writers in the early 1970s, uh, I can't remember who wrote this article, but it was titled Amos and Andy Meet the Honeymooners, and anyone familiar with, with both shows, and, and you generally were if you were a kid back in, the, in, the, in that time, uh, could appreciate what a brilliant piece of writing it was. All right, we're going to recycle a few things in today's program, including just a quip of the day we did a while back from Fran Lebowitz. I had a chance to see Fran Lebowitz on stage in uh, in. St. Paul, Minnesota, some years back for a conference for National Public Radio, which is a story in itself. But anyway, a funny lady said, Fran, I've done the calculation, and your chances of winning the lottery are identical whether you play or not. Not uh, being mathematicians, we we can't, of course, verify her work on that one. But uh, some shocking new numbers have come our way, and uh, we're going to cite these today for our stat of the day. According to the current edition of New Scientist magazine, uh, and I'm going to quote here, a study of the hydrodynamics of defecation finds that all mammals producing feces similar to ours take 12 seconds on average to relieve themselves. And now you know the rest of the story. According to the magazine, the smell of body waste attracts predators, which is dangerous for animals. If they stay longer doing their business, they're exposing themselves and risking being discovered, said Patricia Yang, a mechanical engineer at the Georgia Institute of Technology. Yang and colleagues filmed 
elephants, pandas, and warthogs at a local zoo, and one team member's dog in a park as they defecated. And while this may be more detailed than you crave, I would go on to note from the piece that these animals all excrete cylinder-shaped feces like humans, and the duration of defecation remained a constant. Anyway, the piece notes that after doing this diligent research, the team fed their observations into a mathematical model that can predict defecation times for digestive system problems. So this, I guess, could have some application to the world of gastroenterology. Patricia Yang was quoted as saying, if it's taking longer than 12 seconds, I say you should go see someone about it. She added, but you can't count the newspaper time. Well, we wonder what our friends over at the Uncle John's Bathroom Reader Institute have to say about this. If you've not yet stumbled upon the Bathroom Readers series, dear listener, you may want to go out and uh, see if you can put your hands on one. I confidently predict they will then become a part of your bathroom. This gives us a chance to plug our archives here at Radio Parallax. We, on, I believe, three occasions interviewed Gordon Uncle John Javna from the Uncle John's Reader Series, and he was always a most amusing guest. And we feel fairly confident that right now, as we speak, he's doing some important research on the 12-second issue. Now, it turns out on the zoologic front, we have some unabashedly good news which is that a single dose of vaccine could halt the chlamydia epidemic currently wiping out Australia's koalas. New Scientist reports that it may even pave the way for a human vaccine. In trials, the vaccine has been shown to slow the rate of new infections and treat koalas in the early stages of the disease. A third of Australia's koalas have been lost over the last two decades, largely due to chlamydia, which now affects between 50 and 100% of wild populations. The sexually transmitted disease causes painful urinary tract inflammation, infertility, and blindness. Chlamydia in koalas is triggered by Chlamydia pecorum, a bacteria they may have contracted from livestock originating in Europe. A similar species, Chlamydia trachomatis, causes chlamydial disease in humans. Radio Parallax has so far been unable to confirm reports that the anti-vaxxer movement is protesting the use of such vaccines on the koalas. And in fact, I'm kind of sorry I'm making that joke because, good God, it may give someone an idea. And regarding the vaccine quote-unquote controversy, we have this. Measles and mumps, which are vaccine-preventable diseases that once seemed all but eradicated, are back. They're enjoying a resurgence in the U.S. where herd immunity, that's when enough people are immunized to protect a whole population, is on the decline, thanks at least in part to the anti-vaccination movement. Health officials in Texas report the number of mumps cases in the state just hit a 22-year high. 221 people have been diagnosed with the mumps in Texas. And, you know, it's generally not a fatal disease, but it can lead to deafness. It can lead to brain inflammation and other complications. And it's preventable with the MMR vaccine, which, of course, also protects you against measles and rubella. That's the M, the M, and the R. The recommended two doses are reportedly only 88% effective against the virus. And immunity against mumps 
does wane with time. Recurring outbreaks have prompted the CDC to consider a third routine dose of the vaccine. New scientist notes that safety concerns about the MMR vaccine have allowed measles, which can cause lung and brain damage, to make a comeback. And how about this item, where law enforcement bumps up against uh, medicine and biology? There is now uh, increasing evidence that uh, marijuana can be effective in easing clinical pain. This is not exactly a surprise. It's been known for, I don't know, uh, a couple of millennia that, uh, that cannabis does have a role to play in pain relief. Tinctures involving cannabis were freely, were freely available in the United States uh, up until the early days of the 20th century. But from a piece of new scientists from the April 29th, issue, we have this. In the United States, 28 states have now legalized medical marijuana in some form. I believe that's now up to 29. Conditions sometimes treated with cannabis include pain, depression, nausea, psychosis, and seizures. Now, an analysis from 2007 to 2014 has shown that states with legalized medical marijuana spent less than others on prescriptions for those five conditions through Medicaid which is a scheme for people on low incomes, notes the magazine. The study couldn't prove that medical marijuana caused this difference, but no difference was found in prescriptions for conditions unlikely to be treated with cannabis. The magazine reports this might also be good news for efforts to cut the U.S. opioid epidemic. I would put epidemic uh, perhaps in quotes, because although opioid use has been up in the U.S. for the past 20 years, So has its intended result, better pain control. At any rate, we are seeing a record number of deaths from prescription painkillers and illegal opioids. And in the case of the prescription painkillers, many of them are being used illegally. Nevertheless, to get off my soapbox, some studies have found that the availability of medical marijuana is linked to fewer opioid overdose deaths. Peace notes that David Bradford at the University of Georgia calculated that if all states allowed medical marijuana, the total Medicaid savings in 2014 could have been about $1 billion. And in two sciencey items that are very much not related to the issue of marijuana, we have this. A stage of brain development has been recreated in a dish, something never observed in real time before which was that nerve cells derived from stem cells were seen migrating and forming functional neural circuits resembling those in the cerebral cortex. This comes from an article in Nature. And some good news on the environmental front. Apparently the UK had its first coal-free day since the Industrial Revolution last April 21st. That's according to the National Grid. I'm not sure what the national grid is, but hopefully they're an authority on this. It added that this is a sign of things to come as coal gets squeezed out of electricity generation by sources such as gas, nuclear, wind, and solar. The the UK's last power station is expected to close by 2025. Now, at this point, I'm tempted to, uh, to jump back into the Rolling Stone article on global warming, which uh, we, we perused a bit a few weeks back, but I've only got a couple minutes left on this segment, so this is not the time. Let's instead go to an old standby we enjoy very much, the Old Farmer's Almanac. 
the piece. This comes from last year's Old Farmer's Almanac, which I cut up. The article was titled, 10 Peculiar Laws That Explain Everything. Subheadline was, okay, not everything, but these laws discovered by experts in many fields shed light on many of life's mysteries. Let's just sample a few, such as Dunbar's number, which comes from the English anthropologist Robin Dunbar, dating to 1992. What it says, The size of the human brain limits the number of stable relationships that one human being can maintain to about 150. What it means? Well, that a person can have about 150 good friends at one time. Example, it's noted that the number roughly matches the average size of villages, tribes, and military units all over the world. So maybe Dunbar's onto something. And we are, how about number three, the Dunning-Kruger effect. This comes from the American social psychologists David Dunning and Justin Kruger in 1999. What it says, in Dunning's, word, in Dunning's words, if you're incompetent, you don't know that you're incompetent. What it means, inept people overestimate their skills. Example, Kruger and Dunning were inspired by a bank robber who knew that lemon juice can be used as, quote, invisible ink, quote, unquote. The message can be read only after heating the paper. So, um, turned out the thief rubbed it all over his face, believing it would make him invisible to the bank's security cameras. All right, how about number seven, the Pareto Principle. This comes from the Italian economist Vilfredo Pareto, dating back to 1906. What the law says, 80% of the effect comes from 20% of the cause. What it means, well, 80% of a company's sales comes from 20% of the sales force. 80% of complaints come from 20% of customers. 80% of crimes are committed by 20% of criminals, and so on. Example, well, in 1992, the United Nations reported the richest 20% of the world's population controlled 82.7% of the world's income. And finally, we have number nine, Stigler's Law of Eponymy. It's from the American statistics professor Stephen Stigler, dating back to 1980. What it says, no discovery is ever named after its discoverer. <laughs> what it means, the credit for important findings often goes to someone else. Example, America is named after Amerigo Vespucci, not Christopher Columbus. One that comes to mind is Bode's Law, describing the planetary distances from the sun. It was discovered by a man named Titus. Bode publicized it and got the credit. But anyway, we have to give credit to um, the statistician Stephen Stigler because he himself attributes Stigler's Law to sociologist Robert K. Merton. Let's do 20 Things You Didn't Know About Earthquakes from the current edition of Discover Magazine. I'm a little disconcerted by number six, which is that a massive quake near Lisbon, Portugal in 1755 was felt as far away as Finland. That was, in fact, a gigantic earthquake followed by a tsunami that wrecked the city of Lisbon, which is something you don't want to really think about when you realize you're about to travel to Lisbon. At any rate, the Lisbon quake inspired the first proposals that waves of energy traveled from a single point of origin through rock, much the way sound waves travel through the air. In the 20th century, the magazine notes, researchers understood seismic waves, which we now categorize as either body, that is, moving through the planet's interior, or surface. The body wave, known as the P wave, or the 
primary or compressional wave travels faster than any other and is the first wave detected during an event. I'm curious to note, according to item 9 here, that P waves can be picked up by dogs. They can actually hear the waves, which have too high a frequency for our own ears to notice, which is why there are so many reports of dogs barking immediately before a quake, or at least before the quake is felt. Well, that's because those P waves are moving faster than the S waves, the secondary waves. Those are the ones that generate the up and down of the quake. Discover notes that while seismic waves are now well understood, science still is unable to explain earthquake lights, which are multicolored flashes in the sky, typically reported before or during many large tremors. Earthquake light sightings date back to at least the 4th century B.C. Here's one little item I certainly did not realize, but between 1977 and 1999, the world experienced zero seismic events that were magnitude 8.5 or higher. Since 2004, however, we've had six big shakes of magnitude 8.5 or more. Of course, it's been noted that our fussy planet does go through dips and peaks, like so many natural phenomenon. From 1950 to 1965, for example, no fewer than seven quakes of 8.5 magnitude or more jolted our Earth. You know, as I think about it, we're recording this right now about a quarter mile from the Hayward Fault. In 1868, the Hayward Fault experienced a big ol' shake. For a generation, it was known as the Great San Francisco Earthquake until that little event of 1906 made everybody forget about it. It's about overdue for another uh, rock and roll session, but it might take place 50 years in the future. Frankly, I hope it does. I'm Douglas Everett, listening to Radio Parallax. Stick around. Mm-hmm.